Welcome to the Success IQ podcast, the show for entrepreneurs wanting to create and live an exceptional life. I'm your host, Jeff Nicholson. For those of you who are new to the show, welcome. I'm an expert in performance and mindset, supporting business owners to create exceptional results in life and business. And I achieve this through coaching, training, speaking, and my online programs. I started this podcast to discover how other thought and business leaders create and enjoy success, and to identify the common strategies and techniques, as well as the mindset they have adopted to live their version of exceptional. My aim is simple. It's for you to learn and implement the valuable lessons shared in these episodes. You deserve to live and enjoy an exceptional life, but in order to achieve this, you will need to adopt new strategies and ways of thinking to accomplish your goals. Now, don't forget to hit that subscribe button to make sure you don't miss any of these brilliant episodes. Head over to jeffnicholson.co.uk to register for my Kick Mediocrity in the Nuts newsletter, as well as all you need to know on how to connect with me on social media or join the Facebook group. Now, on with the show. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are in the world. I truly hope you are having an amazing week. So this is episode 175, and I apologize for the huge delay. I think the last episode we put on was back in June. Um, the reason is really, really simple. Um, I got COVID, and it's taken me an awful long time to recover. Um, in fact, I'm still recovering. It's, it's one of those... Um, epic battles to get my health back um but yes the whole family got it um, and we were completely flattened so uh, we are back now with a great new set of interviews and we are kicking this episode 175 off with guy bauer now guy bauer is the founder and creative director of umalt a b2b video marketing agency his agency specialize in helping b2b brands simplify their complex sales message with video guy and his team concept, script, and oversee video campaigns that make the complex simple and sexy, transforming ordinary business into extraordinary brands. Guy is the author of Death to the Corporate Video, which I really love, and his biggest life regret is being a Cincinnati Bengals fan. Now, basically, I'm either assuming that that's a really, really bad team. Um, I'm, I'm not going to admit I know whether it's baseball, American football, or um, basketball, but um, yeah, he's a he's a Bengals fan. Um, welcome to the show, Guy. Thanks for having me, Jeff. How are you? I am very good, sir. Very good. Um, we wish we. I think we've had our summer, but I think that actually happened in March. <laughs> yeah, because the weather is abysmal here. But other than that, everything is cool. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time and joining me today. My pleasure. Glad to be here. And I just have to critique the Brits here. You always insult your own weather. I was just there in London uh, the past few days. It's beautiful. It's 20 degrees Celsius, sunlight, no humidity. It's gorgeous. And you all trash your own weather. You got to knock it off. You, you do. You, I have to say, but you come in one of those rare times where the sun actually showed. So that's it's just one of those things. Up in the northeast of England, that is extremely rare. We we have we have rain the size of small telegraph poles that bruise dogs. It's just one of those things that happens. But no, I, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. That's because you Americans always have sunshine. You even call us you even call a state the sunshine state because that's what you <laughs> expect. Is, we do take it for granted. Positivity. Yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> um, before we sort of dive into the show, can you give us a little bit of a backstory of what's brought you to this point today? Sure. Um, I am a video nerd. I've been into making videos since the seventh grade, uh, initially just as a hobby. And then the recession of 2008, 2009 turned it into a profession. I just couldn't find a job. So I started freelancing um, making videos. And then, so that was 2010. I, I started uh, a company called Guy Bauer Productions. And then in 2018, after eight years of making what I would consider very boring corporate video, I just kind of had it. And I wrote a book called Death to the Corporate Video. And it's kind of my treatise against these very bland, ineffective, quote unquote, corporate videos that, uh, are, I don't even know why they're made. Honestly, I, I can't even. So basically, after eight years of doing it, I was like, all right, no, I'm not doing it anymore. I started my current agency, Umalt, where uh, uh, we make B2B ads. And uh, for the past three years, that's what we've been doing. And it's kind of the uncorporate video is what we make. Yeah, and I highly recommend anyone who wants to look at how it should be done to just need to go to Umalt's site because some of the videos are absolutely brilliant. There's, there's, there's a couple that I watched and was like, I was just mesmerized by the production scale of what that must have been like. But they are they are definitely worth to go over and have a look. So I guess the first thing is is what how would you describe a corporate video? So in the sense of what you're what you moved away from. Yeah. So a corporate video could be like an event video of a time lapse of a room filling up and cut to people picking up their name badges, cut to people eating popcorn shrimp. Uh, so event recap videos, which, you know, again, like uh, every event has food and every event has name badges and every event has rooms that fill up and then empty out. And so uh, event videos, it could be um, talking head CEO videos where uh, CEO just is going on and on for three and a half minutes while you cut to people in slow motion, writing on whiteboards and walking down hallways. Um, A corporate video is essentially another term for a crap video. And we call it corporate video to be nice. Um, It's in a different class of content. It's stinky content. So we call it a corporate video. And, And the biggest thing that all corporate video has in common is if you step back and ask the question, would anyone watch this just unprompted? Like, would does anyone wanna watch this? The answer is universally no. So that's how you know you're making a corporate video. If you really take a step back, get out of your own body, look at the thing you've made and ask yourself, would anyone actually really watch this like by themselves? So so, so it's a bit like a corporate vision statement as well. It's just a bunch of hot air. It's just nothing. It's like you take a step back and you're like, good grief, we've made nothing here. Um, it, 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 it doesn't serve anyone but the corporation that made it. So it drives no value for the viewer in terms of entertainment value. And it just goes on and on for three and a half minutes about how the company is family owned or has a great culture of, of, we feel like a family here, or, you know, we 
really pride ourselves on customer service. I mean, all it just is filled with tropes and cliches. And again, it doesn't aim to give any sort of entertainment value to its audience. It's just complete self-service. And the, um, the underlying root cause of this is a lack of creative vision. And the what we found, the root cause was, you know, when I go back to when I had my production company, um, a client would say, hey, we want a video. And we would say, great, what day should we show up with a camera? And they would say, come on, May 23rd. And we would say, what time? And then we'd show up May 23rd and shoot things and just point our camera at things, at people's at people talking and then at people working in the office. So what was missing was the idea. Like what's an idea besides people talking in a conference room and meeting in a, you know, by a whiteboard. And what we started doing was I started making our own videos. Right. Um, And like, we call it spec work in this business. And, and they were, blowing up with popularity. And finally it took, again, it took me eight years to come to this conclusion after eight years, I was like, Oh, okay. So all the stuff we make that's popular and good all started with an idea and all the stuff we do. That's terrible, lame, boring, and awful. It just was, it just started with what time, what day and time should we show up with a camera? And that's when I put two and two together of like, Oh, okay. It's actually what makes a great video or what great makes a great ad is not the camera is not how long you shot it's not any of those technical things it's what is the idea what is the idea you're trying to communicate through the medium of video it's not just the medium of video like that's not what people are digesting they're digesting an idea illustrated through the medium of video Okay, so there's sort of two questions on on the back of that. Would you say that was also the same issue with businesses who were trying to sell to uh, to sort of uh, the B two C businesses, or do you think it's mainly the big problem is B two B? So B two C has this issue, but it's not as pronounced as B two B. In B two B, the the quote unquote corporate video is the main. Uh, communications device. So in B2C, they have their big agencies, they'll have their ad campaigns, and those agencies specialize in ideas and they get it. So B2C is a little bit, they have, uh, you know, a little bit more savvy in this regard. Uh, B2B, um, we just had Paul Cash, uh, the author of Humanizing B2B on our podcast. And um, he, he talked about like kind of the root of this uh, issue is that uh, years ago, B2B marketing was actually called industrial marketing, and it was a very human sport. The salespeople usually did the marketing. It was in 3D. It was a person. But then as the internet evolved, B2B brands just didn't evolve with it. And so what they did was they kind of, and this is the root of corporate video, is they they kind of abdicated um, the creative uh, and kind of like the overall, like be, uh, having to actually attract attention because they never had to develop that muscle because they had real people on the ground. And so B2B, it's 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 a bigger problem in B2B. Yeah. And do you think they've ever, you know, it's always an interesting one, but when businesses are in trouble, the first two departments seem to get 
they're sort of they're pushed out of marketing and sales. Do you think is that they don't give those two? Um, that's a very generalized term, of course, but you'll know what I mean. Um, do you think it's because they don't have, or perhaps they do now, but in certainly, I, I know what my my sort of my granddad who owns business own businesses and stuff. Do you think it's because they don't have that same sort of respect for that type of that creative um, avenue? So again, we're speaking in broad generalizations. So this isn't always the case, but I would say yes. You know, in a lot of the B2B companies we work with, the there are people with marketing roles, but either they don't have full empowerment um, or they um, they're the real person driving it is the CEO or some kind of different or an operations person. B2B is very operations product focused. And a lot of times it's engineering led. You know, the founder is some kind of engineer, software or hardware or, or something like that. They they are a doer. They are an implementer. Um, and so there's just a weak marketing muscle inside of a lot of B2B brands. Again, broad generalization, that's not true in many of our clients. But yeah, I think that's correct. It's just not a mature, it's either not mature or it's not empowered. And the, the latter is the bigger issue. I've seen so many marketing teams that just don't have power. Yeah, they're not sort of in that high level decision tree of doing it. It's kind of like, right, okay, go just go and get a video done. Let's just tick the box. <laughs> and it's, it's done. Yeah. Correct. You're exactly 100% correct. Mm-hmm. How do you, like, for example, um, not particularly picking any specific company, but you've got a great one um, I was looking at before, which was almost like the... Um, this guy was about to hit a mouse and all of a sudden as it went to this almost like this defcon unit or space control that was talking about stuff how the hell do you come up especially if that muscle is something that's not really pushed how do you come up with those sort of ideas to introduce into that is there a specific process that that you would go through yeah. So believe it or not, the ideas aren't hard to come by. What's hard to come by is the trust to do those ideas. Um, so, uh, yeah. And and we have a very uh, like because we've had to hone this muscle of getting internal buy in from the non marketing, quote unquote, non creative folks. Um we have a specific process. And the first thing is the understanding that no one. So like we've just trashed the engineering and product people, but let me bring them back is none of them, even though they're not marketing and quote unquote creatives, none of them want boring stuff. None of them go home and just watch blueprints all night. You know, they're going to watch Netflix. They all watch Amazon Prime or whatever, Hulu, HBO. Um, None of them want boring things. It's that they don't know how it's done right and a lot of times an agency will come in with an idea and just pitch the idea well when you pitch an idea in a vacuum the people who aren't familiar with the creative process are gonna 
uh, there's like a speed limit barrier and they're going to re and that's the idea of risk, right? Like, well, what if this doesn't work and all that stuff? And that's where you get into a subjective battle with those stakeholders who are more, you know, engineering product focused and you're always going to lose. So the best idea in the world will always lose to a risk adverse business leader who doesn't, again, it isn't in the day-to-day creative grind. They, they have no real experience. So what we've done is developed a, a pretty scientific solution. And that is um, you need to sell just the idea of, of what the strategy is. You need to sell a box in which creative ideas live. So one of the big, best tools we have for this is a competitive analysis. And in B2B, this is pretty simple. So what you do is you take your top three competitors and look at all their work. I'm not kidding, Jeff, 95% of the time when we do that, all of the competitors have the same exact videos. It's all stock footage of planes taking off and then that that top-down view of the Tokyo-Shibuya intersection cut to the sun rising and then the earth swirling around with words like, you know, disruption over it. Uh, It's almost comical. So when you show the rational, more engineering folks, the competitive analysis and saying, listen, here's all your competitors. They all have the same videos. Why would we make one of those? Then they go, ah, you're right. So let's make something different. And that's when you get the contrarian buy-in. And that's when you can put the pedal to the metal with the ideas. Yeah. And and do you think, because when you were talking about that and sort of looking from the that competitive thing and them all kind of like doing the same thing, there's certain... I'm thinking of, of you know, of if, well, let, for me, the way I'm seeing it is like Apple. You know, they came out with the way that they did the videos of their products. And then all of a sudden, there seems to be an awful lot of people copying that format, whether it be um, the, I can't remember, the, there was an English guy that who, who used to do sort of describe all of the products Johnny and the I. way it was built. And, yeah. So the way he used to desc- describe that. And then all of a sudden, I watched something uh, for some sort of e-writer the other day, and that was almost exactly the same. Is it? Is that just because they see a formula that works and then they just stick at it? Is that why they tend to do the same thing as well, as well as that sort of that thing about just coming up with the new ideas and having the courage to sort of embrace that? Or do they see something work or believe that works and then just tend to follow that flow? Uh, yeah, it's a bit of both, actually. So it's it's a... It's um, it's a phenomenon I call default creative. So default creative is essentially looking out at the market and seeing Apple, right? And uh, seeing what they do with Johnny Ive uh, and almost treating that idea like it's in the public domain that you could just pick it off the shelf and implement it and apply it to your situation. Now, when you copy, the best thing you can do is make a subpar copy. You can never copy and be better than the original. It's like making a photocopy, right? It's always going to degrade in quality. And uh, by the way, by the time you've copied the Johnny I video, uh, Apple has already moved on to, you know, two generations after that. So um, it's 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 all about risk aversion is that, well, we don't want to try something new because what if it fails? So let's just go with consensus. And that's, again, where the, the whole idea of, honestly, there's industries we 
work in inside B2B where there's complete consensus on the creative, meaning I can put a low, any one of the competitors logos on any one of the spots and it will all make 100% sense. That's scary. That means those companies are just burning those dollars making consensus stuff. And what has happened is, is either the agencies or the production companies that are making this stuff have, have not convinced and have not shown um, the stakeholders that consensus is, you know, uh, not a good idea um, that you have to have a contrarian stance. So they haven't flipped that switch inside the organization that, um, and they haven't flipped them into the, into the thinking that um, being safe is actually being dangerous by you doing the consensus creative by you doing the same thing as everyone else you're actually being riskier than if you did something different because if you just do math if you have if you and your competitors make up 10 of the you know the market companies or whatever that means if you all do consensus each one of you is entitled to 10% just math right 100 divided by 10 okay um but if you do something contrarian you have better odds of increasing your market share just because you look and sound different for no other reason. It's that simple. And so that's, it's psychological. It's all about risk aversion and the false assumption that if you're safe, like if you copy and do the consensus, you're being safe. It's actually the opposite. Yeah. Because everything just looks the same. And the only time you you know, even if you look at it from the, that visual thing, everything stays the same, but you notice movement. And I suppose if someone's going to jump out and do a different type of video, they're going to get noticed way more because it is completely different, which is, I suppose, like the example of the way Apple, when they started to do it the way they did, more people stood out. And I'm probably wrong on this, but then all of a sudden people, everyone started to have apples. You know, it went from that point of... um when you went into an airport and everyone had sort of like the HPs or the, or the think think pads, I think they're called or whatever until all of a sudden is you just saw Macs everywhere on the thing. And that singing noise, when you open a Mac and it sang to you, you know, all of that. And I don't know whether that is a correlation to the way they started to do their videos or the way that they started to market, but it seemed to, it's certainly from someone who doesn't know what we're talking about. um, It certainly seemed to sort of coincide with that. Well, Apple are marketing masters. Uh, they are wizards and they are always a decade ahead of everyone. I remember almost a decade ago, maybe not that, maybe like five years ago, Apple came out and said, listen, we're not we're not going to make ads anymore. Like we're not going to make commercials that feel like advertising. What we're going to make are little pieces of entertainment that is filled with our products and has a marketing message, but its primary core is entertaining its audience, not just listing a bunch of features. And their first film was this day in the life of rock and and Siri. And ever since then, if you look at any of Apple's marketing, it always serves you value the uh, as the viewer first. It doesn't market at you first. It actually tries to make you laugh or cry or you know feel something first. That's it's always its first mission. The second is is oh, and by the way, you know Apple's products are really good. 
well, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always, but by the way, we also do computers or whatever it was at one point. So if you if you look at this from a sort of the the, the corporate side, does the same formula um, fall in line with the smaller businesses? Like we've got listeners, you know, who have are directors of large companies and everything else, but we've also got people who are sometimes just solopreneurs, and sometimes you know they may have a little team. Does that process, you know, sitting down, thinking of the ideas, storyboarding stuff out, does that still flow in the same way, do you think? Oh, more. That's the thing is creative ideas can be a forget 10x. I'm talking thousand X multiplier. Think about Dollar Shave Club. I'm not sure if you're familiar, but they uh, they made a video that went viral six years ago. And I mean, I, I think they're public or they were just bought by Unilever or something. I mean, for billions of dollars. So you as a small business, the greatest thing about the Internet is that it's equal playing field. So. You know, when we when we make ads now, we're a small business, my agency, Umalt, there's four of us and uh, we make ads once a month. We release a new ad and those ads get picked up by ads of the world. Now, when you go on ads of the world, you see it's like agency network, Umalt right next to agency network, DDB, agency network, McCann. It's like like it's like these huge, huge, huge agencies and we are right next to it. And you would never know, do we have a thousand people or or two people? So the internet is the great equalizer and it's a way for you to actually exploit creative. Meaning if you can come up with an idea, it's as simple as that. It's a complete meritocracy online. If you come up with an idea, you can, you can, it, it, I mean, this, there's no limit. It's the math doesn't even make sense at a certain point. So yes, absolutely. The worst thing you can do as a small business is go and copy a huge enterprise. You know, th that enterprise has cash. That enterprise has, you know, they, they can, they have like personal relationships and, you know, huge contracts and all that stuff. You don't have that as a, as a small business, you have to be faster, nimbler and all that stuff. So the worst thing you can do is copy a huge enterprise. You have to, be you and use ideas for sure. If you have a funny idea and you're a law firm, you can do it. Don't feel like you have to be like those other huge law firms that are boring. Yeah. And it boils, it, it boils down to the courage of doing, as you say, is doing the things differently to what you've seen in the past. Exactly. 100% correct. The idea is this is uh, so, um, yeah, I think Hamilton's in the UK. So Hamilton, it's about Alexander Hamilton in the show. Hamilton, Hamilton is the hero and Aaron Burr is the villain. Now, Aaron Burr wanted to be popular amongst all. He has a song. He goes, you know, talk less, smile more. Don't let them know what you're against or what you're for. To which Hamilton is like, wait, you're kidding? Like, no, like I speak my mind. So on the surface, wouldn't Aaron Burr be more popular? He says things to not offend anyone. He wants everyone to be, you know, involved. And he doesn't even after the United States wins the war, uh, he's still like, eh, I'm not sure which way it's going to go. So he doesn't even want to like get onto Congress or whatever, whereas Hamilton just speaks his mind. Right. 
Hamilton doesn't mind polarizing because when you have the courage to polarize, you, you, yes, you do make people that are like, yeah, I don't like them, but you also make people that are like, Oh, I love them. Ryanair Southwest airlines. Not everyone likes Ryanair. I'm sure there's many people that hate it, but the people that love Ryanair love Ryanair, you, you know? So that's it. Have the courage to polarize, be yourself, say things that your competitors can't and you won't win everybody. But that's a fool's errand in trying to be popular with everybody. You have to make super fans. And the way you do that is by polarization. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Guy, we're going to jump over to the second part of the show where I get to ask you a set of questions that I ask every guest who comes on. So are you ready, sir? I am. Okay, so first question is, on average, how much time do you roughly dedicate to self-development a week? I would say I do a half-hour morning routine five days a week, so that is um, two and a half hours a week. Brilliant, okay. And question number two, what book, and it can be any book, has made the biggest impact to your self-development or personal growth and why? I'm not sure if it's an actual print book, but it's an audio book called uh, I'll Meet You at the Top by Zig Ziglar. And uh, I found that and that was one of the very first things I listened to and got into starting out in 2010 in my business. And it kind of got me hooked on self-development. Right. Um, Zig Ziglar is so easy to listen to and he's so correct about everything. He just will get into your soul and kind of start that engine of why you're alive and what your purpose is on earth. And um, I just found it completely transformative and motivating. And to this day, I'll turn Zig Ziglar on if I'm in a slump. Yeah. And he's got a cool name. That man was going to be famous with a name like that, really, wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> you see, it's like Benedict Cumberbatch. So you're not going to just see a window cleaner called Benedict Cumberbatch, are you? It's it's this. I, I, I wish I was called something different than Jeffrey. Um, anyway, number three, what app makes the biggest impact to your business or personal life? Um, app with the biggest impact i would say is asana so that's our project management tool i have been a fan of asana since it came out i love it there's just something about the endorphins you get by clearing tasks on asana so i would say seeing the unicorn yes it, the celebration <laughs> all those little nudges i'm telling you that's psychology um and it gets you into that mindset of getting stuff done Cool, cool. And number four, what was your biggest business mistake that turned into a valuable lesson and what did it teach you? Oh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, it has to be the um, the accounting side. I can make videos all day long. I can come up with ideas all day long, talk to executives, sell and creative. And the mistake I made was not paying attention to the numbers and not having a real good grasp on all of the accounting, the cost accounting, um, benchmarks. We had zero benchmarks in the day. So we had no idea. We were basically just flying without instrumentation. You need to, as a business owner, have a dashboard of benchmarks 
that are essentially your instrument panel um, when you're when you're flying, just like a pilot would never just look out the window. The pilot has the instruments. Um, there's a story of JFK Jr. What JFK Jr. died in a plane crash. And the analysis of the reason why he died was he didn't trust his instruments. So he he flew into bad weather and he had the feeling that his nose would pointed down. His instruments were telling him you're flying straight and level. He had the feeling he was pointed down. So he started pitching up and he kept feeling like the plane was nosing down. Meanwhile, the instruments are telling him like your airspeed is slowing down and your nose is way the heck up. And he eventually stalled out. That's what happened to him. The inst by coming up with benchmarks for your business, it is a dashboard of instruments that you can trust. So when times are good as a business owner, when you close a big deal, your endorphins are going crazy um, without an instrument panel. <clears throat> you may make a huge purchase or hire someone new because you just closed you know, the Johnson account. Um, the instrument panel will bring you back to earth. Uh, vice versa, there may be times when you lost that big deal or you have an upset client or you lost money on something. You take out the instrument panel and the instrument panel is saying, actually, you're fine. And that gets you stops you from going down the dumps. As a business owner, you have to control your emotions. And without a proper instrument panel of benchmarks and metrics, you are literally flying blind. And so that was the biggest lesson I learned. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, I think it's, it's, it's also one of those things like a lot of business owners, when they start off, they just want to focus on what they love to do. Then, you know, their natural gifts. But then if, if you don't know your numbers, and you don't understand, you know, how much a job is actually costing you. You know, it's like, oh, well, I've just got paid this whack amount of money. But then they realize that their expenses have been all of a sudden way, way higher than what they expected. And they realize, actually, they didn't make a profit on that job. They made a loss because they're not, they're not sort of keeping an eye on those numbers. Surprising how many people, especially when it comes to the accounting side, can like make that error. Yeah, well, you know, and and... The culture around business, especially here in the States, is, is driving it. So the year 2018, I did the, the business did top line revenue of $3.5 million. We got into the, <clears throat> excuse me, the Inc. 5000 of the, they call it the 5,000 best companies in the country. And it's based on your top line revenue. So the same year we landed at 800 something on the Inc. 5000, I lost a million dollars. And because in America, it's all about grow your business and you and you speak in you use the term we made three point five million dollars. No, you didn't make three point five million dollars. That's your top line. You made negative a million. So you could have just uh, like, uh, I don't know, like <laughs> just, just not worked for a whole year and went on vacation and you probably wouldn't have spent a million dollars. So it's like this obsession about top line and getting bamboozled and kind of fooled by these big numbers. That's a huge trap that new entrepreneurs and especially I fell into. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. Um, okay. Number, where are we? number five, um, what are your challenges in harmonizing work and life and how do you manage them? I mean, challenges are unlimited. Um, there's never enough time. And, you know, and, and the thing is, is there's that whole thing on your deathbed. Would you want to do one more client project? 
And it's meant to get you to say no, that, you know, you can't, you know, you shouldn't obsess over work, but that's not really realistic either uh, because you do need to work. You know, you need to work as a human. You have to do that um, if you want to send your kids to school and have health care and stuff. So it and that's the hardest thing. They made a whole movie about it. Fiddler on the Roof around balance. Um, it's the hardest thing to achieve. I think what it is, is that every day you wake up, get that calendar out. I use Google Calendar. And calendar your day and try to put boundaries on it. Stop at five, put a half hour in for lunch, put in 15 minute breaks. So when your kids are running around, you know, you're not screaming at them to leave you alone, that you can actually be distracted for 15 minutes. Um, Try, try knowing that you're going to fail a lot, but every day is a clean slate and you can try. It's a, you'll never, it's a mountain you'll never climb. I don't think I'll ever get to balance but you can try to get close. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why um, I either use the word blend or harmonize because you're right, there's so many people that aspire to this, almost feels like this 50-50 split. And it that is just never achievable because then there's, it, 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 you know, for me, it's about prioritizing at that specific time. I, I, I like the right. way that you, you talk about that blocking time out specifically for, um, you know, taking lunch and the amount of people that, Literally, especially in corporate, lunch is literally, well, corporate and business owners, their lunch is actually on their desk while they're answering emails, dealing with fires and and everything else. But actually that coming away and stepping back and, you know, doing what even even going to get a make a coffee, at least you've got up and moved rather than actually being surrounded in your environment. When have have you noticed that since you've had um, children or you start the family that that prioritizing and blocking time out is even more important or have you done that even before? Uh, well, I always did that. Um, I, I was taught that very early on. I love time management. Um, and there's a great course by Dave Crenshaw on LinkedIn for any time management newbies. That is the ultimate Bible on time management. Um, but yeah, kids force it. Kids, if you if you didn't have your time management game up, kids are going to force and expose all those issues. And um, and and yeah, and 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 you know what? Not planning for lunch. That's silly because, you know, you're going to eat, you know, you're going to eat. And what ends up happening is, is you fool yourself into thinking, yeah, I can just eat while I work, but you're not accounting for the 10 minutes it takes to go downstairs and the 10 minutes to come back up and the 10 minutes to eat. Even if you're eating in a fat, that's a half hour, just budget it. And then you'll, you, you're, because what ends up happening is if you don't budget, then that half hour is going to spill into the rest of your day and cause you to be backed up, frustrated, chaotic. This chaos, um, Chaos will take hold of your life faster than anything if you don't account for it. Just account for it. Leave time in to to be sloppy and and for life to to mess around with you. But yeah, to answer your question, um, kids will expose every lack of time management skill that you have, and and it's mandatory. You have to bring them to school. Guess what? You have to feed your kids. Like you can't skip a meal with them. You know what I mean? Like you have to do this stuff. I think there's a whole generation of people now who have been forced to work at home over the last 18 months and now realize that. And they're now learning a whole new set of skills just to try and work out 
how many times little Johnny needs to go to the toilet during the day or stuff like that, that they never even would have entered the conversation or even thought process when they when they weren't there. It's, it's, you know, especially the amount of people, certainly in this country, they've had to homeschool and stuff while lockdown was on and everything. It's just, and also it's that challenge of when you work at home, like I'm just acclimatized to it because I've done it now for 14 years. Um, but you really do appreciate sort of the quietness until all of it, as you say, chaos, which normally is about a very young toddler. Although I'm finding even 16, 17, 18 year old chaps um, being just as pandemonic, pandemonium and chaotic as well. But it, it is, it's really interesting when you're just doing it now. I, I like that. And also you're quite lucky to have learned that very early on. Cause I've, I kind of like, came across that just by accident when I started to work for myself. And I wish I'd been told that prior because my planning strategy used to be, you know, start work at nine o'clock, get out of bed quarter to nine, get to get to the office and planning started when I arrived. And that was when you had 3,400 odd things that people had told you had gone wrong that day or that evening. And then you were firefighting and the plan never really started, but it's that it, it is, it's a, it's a really, really good strategy. And I always, I always plan tomorrow's day, like the day before, always stay a day. And honestly, it takes five minutes. It's just five minutes of quiet time and just bucket out the buckets. Google, Google calendar is great. I mean, it puts in things into blocks and you just dr- click and drag them around. Yeah. Yeah. I call it, I call it as one of the strategies that I teach is called bookending your day, start the day and end the day. Right. And planning is always that one because one, you'll sleep better because you'll go, I know what I'm doing tomorrow, and you won't have that. Well, it's not to say that you won't have it, because quite often, if you own your business, your brain's always going off anyway. But um, it's that thing that you don't have those restless rocking nights where you don't want to forget something or whatever it is. So it's the fact that you're as in best control as you possibly can be with what you know, and it just allows the you know stuff to flow a hell of a lot better. That's exactly right. I really recommend Dave Crenshaw's course um, because he has this whole idea of of uh, gathering points. And the idea is you never want your brain to be a gathering point of to do's or like reminders. The, the second something enters your brain of, oh, I should do that. Send an email to yourself, get it out of your brain. Your brain is not going to remember. And what it's going to do is is um, introduce a bunch of anxiety because your brain's trying to sh- juggle all this stuff. I promise you, I go to bed every night very peacefully because nothing is in my brain. I got nothing in there by the end of the night. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Okay. Um, number six, what advice would you give to an entrepreneur that you wish you had known starting out? Get prepared to work your tail off. You think you're you're starting this business to uh, to make your own hours? Guess what? You get to make them longer. You're working more hours for less money upstart at, at the beginning. Okay, so like get get your working boots on. Uh, don't fall for any of this stuff of, that a credit card that Chase cares about your business and all this kind of like, because your business needs capital. No, what you need to do is work. Forget about the rules of, you know, oh, if you're not good at something, hire someone to do that. When you're starting out, no, you need to do everything because when you're starting out, cash is the most important thing. L- build your own website. 
You've got to do all of this stuff your own because you need to conserve the cash. And and in the beginning, you're making a trade of your your time instead of the money. Your your capital as a small business owner, as a startup, your capital is your time, not the cash. The cash will come. So get ready to go really long and many years. So it took me around eight years of solid 12-hour days with weekend work before this thing kind of had a heartbeat where I didn't have to do that. So it's a lot. It's a and and if your heart is not in this, good there's no, that's the other thing. Everyone online trashes being an employee. I can't stand that. I hate that. They're like, "Oh, if you want to, you know, like if you just want a normal life be an employee." There is nothing wrong with being an employee. That is silly. So there's this obsession like we talked before the show about Rolexes and private jets. I've never gone on a private jet and we've done millions of dollars in profit. That ain't possible. Like like you this has to be deep. This has to be deep. And if you're just doing it for the money and all that stuff, it's going to be exposed. Every entrepreneur I know is nuts. We're just cuckoo. And there's some reason why we're climbing this mountain. We don't know why. Yes, we like money, but that's not the whole reason. Every successful entrepreneur I made, I've met is just nutty. And if you don't have that nuttiness, if you're not willing to work for $4 an hour for six years, when you when you take a look at all the hours you work versus the money you made, then this ain't for you. So get your working boots on. I, th- I think that I think it for me it's 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 it, you do you do it's whatever you do whether you choose your own business or whether you want to you know whether you want to be employed. It's about being happy because I don't I don't see the point of working doing something you hate. Um, because you know it makes you ill and it you know you, it affects all sorts of things. But I you know if you're if you're going to do this, you do literally have to be batshit crazy. I don't think there's any, that, that should be the definition in Wikipedia, really. Entrepreneur, batshit crazy, loves to wear hats and, and needs to prioritize. <laughs> and, and, and take inordinate amounts of risk. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable how much risk I took. When I look back at the younger me, I'm like, I, and you know what it is? I was too naive to understand it. I was too dumb. I didn't know. I, I, and like, I was like, oh my word. So don't be fooled into this thing that, you know, if you're not running your own business, you're a loser. That is cockamamie. That's insanity. Um, number seven, which it comes to that, is what is your definition of success? My definition of success is not around money. It's the ability to choose. I would love a day when a client calls, a potential client calls, and and I'm like, eh, I'm just not into it. Uh, right now, we you know we do filter clients out if we're not a good fit. But even you know, like there's still projects. I'm like, eh, I'm just not into this. Like I want to be in a place where. A client calls and I can just say like, eh, I'm just, mm. I know, I, I know it's a lot of money and I, I'm sure it'd be cool, but I don't know. I just not feeling it. Uh, that would choice choices. Uh, yeah. That would, that's my definition. Love that. Love that. Um, okay. So you mentioned before that you do a morning routine. Um, so the question is, is do you have any daily routines or rituals that make a huge positive impact to your day? Yes. My routine is, 
Uh, every day I have this, I used to have Google Reader and then they got rid of it. So now I use a service called uh, Feedly. Um, and uh, it is an aggregator of blogs. So basically it takes the RSS feed of all the different blogs I like and and puts them into one seamless dashboard. And so I, and, and they're compromised of trade publications and entertainment and just kind of different things. And I just click through that. It takes me about 10 minutes. I speed read a bunch of, uh, you know, I just scan. Um, so I do that. Maybe I'll read a couple articles or watch a couple of videos. Then I always watch one Linda lesson uh, or LinkedIn learning. Um, and so, uh, right now I'm on, uh, I'm not actually in LinkedIn learning. I watch one lesson. I'm, I'm teaching myself Unreal. So I'm watching one Unreal lesson a day. Um, and then I read a magazine. So I have a bunch of magazine subscriptions and I'll just like very quickly scan through a magazine. And so that takes about a half hour. Brilliant. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, finally, we're at the end of the show. So um, how can we find out more about you, Guy? Um, please, the floor is yours. Anything you would like to share with us, it will all go on the show notes. Great. So you can uh, learn more about our agency at umalt.com, U-M-A-U-L-T.com. And uh, we also have a book called, uh, or I wrote a book called Death to the Corporate Video. And there's also a podcast of the same name, Death to the Corporate Video. You can check us out on iTunes, Spotify, wherever podcasts are. Fantastic. Thanks very much. I'll make sure that all of that is in. Um, thank you so much for taking the time and joining me. I've really, really enjoyed it. Got tons out. I've got notes galore here. Um, but thank you very much and wishing you the greatest success. Jeff, same to you. This was a really fun show to be on. So thank you. So first of all, just let me say a massive thank you for joining me today. It's lovely to know that you're out there listening. And it's great to have the emails that I get from you with suggestions about the show and what you think about the show. That's really nice. Really does help me make the show even better. If you'd like to find out more about me and the types of services I offer or my social media links, then please visit www.jeffnicholson.uk. You can also join us on the Facebook page. Just search for Success IQ Podcast. And that's a new page that we've put up that I'm trying to grow and develop. So you can tune in and find us on other stations such as Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, and of course, iTunes. And if you have the time, it would be great if you could pop over there, leave a rating, leave a review, because it really does help me grow the show and make the impact that I'm really looking for. So just to say, I hope you have a fantastic week. I wish you the greatest success and I look forward to speaking to you next week. Take care.